Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. In an experiment. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this... Not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, structures inspired by origami. And how banning fossil fuel projects could entrench poverty in sub-Saharan Africa. I'm Shamli Bandel. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. First up this week, Noah Baker has been imagining a future where we all live in origami bouncy castles. It'll make more sense in a minute. When I think of origami, the first thing that comes to my mind is a paper crane. This is kind of the first thing I guess you fold when you start origami. And I did not succeed on the first try, <laughs> so it took me a couple of tries to get it right. This is David Melanson, an engineer from the University of Harvard. When he thinks of origami he sees much more than paper cranes. To make a shape, it's, it's very powerful. So there are mathematical proof that tells you from a 2D sheet of paper, you can introduce any fold that you want to get an arbitrary 3D object. But also, most importantly, there's this property in, introduced by these origami creases that you can get, it's called bistability. So what that means is your structure has more than one stable state. So a stable state would be a state in which the structure can stay without any force apply on the structure. So it's happily staying there. You don't have to force it to stay there. To David, the flexibility and bi-stability of origami made it a great candidate for making deployable structures, portable, compressible, storable 3D objects, with uses ranging from product packaging to emergency shelters or even satellite solar panels. But folding a structure from a flat sheet is not especially practical or quick. Plus, as anyone who's seen my attempts at a paper crane will attest, origami requires a degree of skill. So David and his team adapted the art. I believe what we're doing is kind of origami plus, right? It's not the most uh, purest form of origami where you start with a sheet of paper and then you introduce folds. For us, we're thinking of, you know, fabrication methods that basically you don't have to be good at origami to create the shapes. Specifically, David applied elements from origami to another type of deployable structure, inflatables. The advantage with that 
is very easy to deploy. You have a pump and then you can deploy. You think of these bouncy castle or these big shelters for sports event. This is very good, but again, there's a disadvantage where you need to have a, a seal there or a continuous supply of pressure uh, to keep it deployed. But a flat sheet of paper isn't blow-upable, and that's where their innovation came in. You know, a 2D sheet of paper is a surface. From that surface, we needed to close it to form a cavity in order to be able to inflate it. And this really closed the loop. So we had an origami cavity you can deploy with pressure. And because you introduce this multi-stability, more than one stable state, then you can snap it to the deployed state. And then you don't need this force, this pressure anymore to keep it there. So you can disconnect. It stays there in the deployed configuration. An origami structure, but that you can blow up with pressure. Imagine a bouncy castle, but with folds that make it stable when it's blown up. What's more, you can quickly pull it down again by sucking the air out, and it will fold back down into its compressed, stable state. David pointed out that, in theory, this concept doesn't only work for flat-packed structures, but also for structures with two three-dimensional stable states. For instance, you could think of transforming a structure from a uh, bird to a rabbit. Why would that be useful? I'm not sure, but this is quite exciting to think that you could do that. This isn't the first time that principles from origami have been used in engineering, but up until now, most of the focus has been on much smaller scales, and there are several reasons for that. Here's Sigrid Adriansis, a structural engineer from Princeton University, who's written a news and views article about David's paper. The challenge of scaling it up is that at the smaller scale, gravity doesn't really matter. We could assume that paper theoretically doesn't have a thickness and doesn't weigh anything. But from the moment you start scaling this up, you know, you cannot really build a shelter out of paper. You know, your material has to be thicker. So one challenge is mass. It also has to maybe be waterproof. So basically your material has to maybe fulfill more functions. And then, of course, if we put it outside, you've got the wind blowing on it. You've got snow. Those are all quite large loads that also start acting on this system. All these things are challenges at the larger scales. To tackle these challenges, David and his team went back to mathematical principles. Here's Sigrid again. First of all, they present a design methodology. So they present a whole description of how you can, you know, what kind of triangles you can use and what their angles have to be to geometrically fit this together. And then they use basically two approaches to test this. One is they use numerical finite element modeling, right? So they basically model the system in the one state, they start inflating it and then see how it gets into the other state. And during that entire process, they model the stresses that are occurring, the displacements of all the points. But of course, any computational model is only as good as you make the model as or as the questions that you ask, right? So to kind of make sure that their models are accurate, they also make prototypes. Now, the prototypes are currently mostly for testing purposes, and much of David's work is still a proof of principle, but he has high hopes for these sorts of inflatable origami structures in the future. I'm really interested in, in transitioning this fundamental research into to solve real-world problems. If you want to use them in extreme scenarios, as I propose, emergency response or space exploration, to have both the numerical tools to show that and also the material platform, to withstand these extreme loadings. So I'm very interested in that. However, I'm also interested in these environmental friendly materials. So I believe origami is a very good design platform, but I'm very interested in finding materials 
that could be degradable, that could be reusable, that could be recyclable and still have the same properties. To me, that would be uh, very exciting. That was David Melanson. Before him, you heard Sigrid Adriansis. The package was edited by Noah Baker and reported by Nick Petridge Howe. And if you now really want to see these origami structures in action, we have you covered. Check out the show notes for a link to a video all about the paper. Coming up, we'll be hearing how an economist thinks that banning funding for fossil fuel projects could hamper efforts to alleviate poverty in sub-Saharan Africa. Right now, though, it's time for this week's research highlights, read by Dan Fox. Carbon dioxide released from streams and rivers is an important source of global emissions. But researchers may have been underestimating the amount of CO2 released because all their measurements were taken during the day. Researchers have known that carbon gets into rivers from rocks, soil and organisms and then gets released into the atmosphere as carbon dioxide. But what wasn't understood was that the levels don't stay the same overnight. A team of researchers analysed 66 rivers around the world and found that nighttime CO2 emissions are on average 27% higher than those during the day. Perhaps because during daylight, some of the CO2 gets fixed by photosynthesis. This is important new information for modelling the planet's carbon cycle. Absorb more of that research over at Nature Geoscience. An analysis of more than 1,000 species shows that birds, mammals and reptiles living on islands tend to be either miniature or gigantic versions of their mainland counterparts. Evidence that the so-called island rule applies across a wide variety of vertebrates. Big mainland animals often evolve smaller bodies on islands, whereas small mainland species become larger. For instance, the world's largest lizard, the island-dwelling Komodo dragon. Researchers set out to settle the debate as to whether examples like the dragon were mere flukes or part of a broader evolutionary pattern. The team gathered data from multiple studies to examine over 1,000 island species and their mainland counterparts. While the evolutionary reasons behind these size changes are complex, the authors found widespread evidence for the island rule around the world with the most extreme shifts in body size occurring for mammals and reptiles on smaller, more remote islands. Take in the scale of that research at Nature, Ecology and Evolution. In the past few months, the United States outlined its intention to stop funding for overseas fossil fuel projects, mirroring similar calls made by a number of European countries. On the face of it, that seems like a sound plan. The world needs to reduce global carbon emissions, after all. But for economist Vidya Ramachandran, Director for Energy and Development at the Breakthrough Institute, these decisions are short-sighted. She's written a worldview for nature, where she suggests that this will do little to reduce emissions and much to entrench poverty in places like sub-Saharan Africa. I gave her a call and she laid out why. I think there are some reasons to be worried about this ban. About 600 million people in Africa lack a reliable source of electricity. From my perspective, the main challenge for Africa is to increase and expand its supply of energy. 
And we need to do that with as broad a portfolio of sources as possible. Taking sources off the table at this point, I think, is detrimental to development and to poverty alleviation in Africa. Sub-Saharan Africa accounts for, in the most recent year, about 2% of total emissions. I don't think these are the countries that need to bear the burden of a ban on fossil fuels. The US, the EU, Japan, and other rich countries still rely on fossil fuels. I think it is the height of climate injustice to impose restrictions on poor countries that are most in need of modern infrastructure and least responsible for the world's climate challenges. And your worldview is really looking at striding that fine line between economic development and climate change. And you suggest that maybe natural gas is one way to alleviate energy poverty. So natural gas is a fossil fuel, but I think it can do much to lift communities out of poverty. It's roughly twice as carbon efficient compared to coal, and it produces radically lower levels of water and land pollution. And Africa has abundant sources of natural gas. The top six countries, Nigeria, Algeria, Mozambique, Egypt, Libya, Angola, and the Democratic Republic of Congo have vast resources of untapped natural gas that could be used to expand their supply of electricity. Mm, And in your worldview, you list some of the ways that natural gas could be used. Maybe you could lay out some of those ideas for us. Uh, Certainly. So natural gas, for one thing, is the most effective form of energy to use in the production of fertilizer. And sub-Saharan Africa uses very little fertilizer. Yields are very low compared to Asia or to Latin America. And in order to expand the amount of fertilizer that is used on African farms, we will need to make fertilizer using natural gas. So that's one really important use. The other uses are things like, you know, in liquefied or compressed form, it can be used to power vehicles. And again, that's a much cleaner form of powering transportation than our traditional fossil fuels that we've been using in the past. And yet it is still a fossil fuel though, right? And of course, extracting natural gas isn't without its issues. It isn't without its issues. And of course, there's been a lot of controversy around the hydraulic fracturing of natural gas. But it is also the case that there are better ways to extract natural gas and that it can serve as a bridge fuel for a very long time. In the US, it is now the largest source of energy for generating electricity. So I think we cannot dismiss it as a very useful and important source of energy. You mentioned using gas as a bridge fuel, and and that's a term that's used a lot to maybe try to stretch out getting to renewable energy. But it's not an uncontroversial subject. There are people that say that, you know, there's no such thing as a bridge fuel, right? It's dirty fuel or it's clean fuel. Is there the potential that if gas is cheap to produce and use, that really it will stymie growth towards renewable energy. Yeah, you know, I don't find that argument convincing. I think countries are exploring a whole range of energy sources because the energy gap is so large. And in my view, the investments in renewables will come as the technologies become more cost-effective and more accessible to poor countries. That's really what's going to drive the development of renewables. It's not that, you know, if we ban oil and gas or if we ban natural gas, 
that these countries are going to develop their renewable sector faster. You can even make the case that you need energy to develop new sources of energy. And by cutting off energy sources, you're cutting off the ability of businesses to do their work, of research companies to do their work, of you know any kind of technology adaptation, of any kind of climate mitigation. All of that needs energy. So I think the idea of not having intermediary fuels would then spur the development of renewables, I don't find that argument convincing. Which maybe brings us back to the subject of your worldview, which is, of course, this this ban by rich countries, the US and the EU. Is there some nuance, do you think, that could be struck between this ban and clearly the need to lift people out of poverty? Yes, I think there is a way to do that. You know, one possibility is to allow an exemption for very poor countries. And uh, the World Bank has a classification of countries by income, you know, something that allows greater flexibility than a blanket ban on the financing of fossil fuels. Another way to do it is to provide an exemption to the countries that are the lowest emitters or the lowest consumers of energy or countries that have very little access to renewable energy technologies. I think there are ways to do this in a reasonable manner rather than imposing a blanket ban on the international financing of fossil fuels. And, you know, one point, Ben, in in that context is that for larger countries, this ban doesn't matter too much. They can raise money on private markets to finance any kind of energy they want. This ban is going to hurt poor African countries the most. I really do hope that countries will think this through, particularly rich countries, which are the largest shareholders in the multilateral development banks, in the financing vehicles that poor countries use, that they'll come up with something much more reasonable that allows all of these countries to develop their renewable resources, but at the same time also prioritizes economic development, poverty alleviation, girls' education, the growth of agriculture, the kinds of things that are really, really important for poor countries. That was Vidya Ramachandran. You can find a link to her worldview in the show notes. Now, finally on the show, it is time for our weekly briefing chat, where we pick our favourite stories from the Nature Briefing. So, Ben, is there anything that has piqued your interest this week? Oh, absolutely, Shamini. What cost 85 million US dollars is 1.8 kilograms, 49 centimetres tall, and achieves something remarkable 300 million kilometres away. I think if I hadn't already had a strong inkling (laughs) based on knowing what you were going to cover, I think the 300 million kilometres away gives it away a bit. So NASA flew a helicopter on Mars? That's right. So the Ingenuity helicopter successfully managed a 39.1 second powered flight, and underline the word powered there, which is the first time that has been achieved on another planet. Kind of amazing, right? This does imply that there's been unpowered flights, like some sort of gliders zooming around on other planets before. Or is it just the parachutes when they kind of drop down from the satellites? Yeah, there have been other experiments where sort of balloons have kind of meandered through atmospheres and what have you. But this is a very, very small helicopter, which was attached to the bottom of the Perseverance rover, which obviously landed on Mars a little while back, and was dropped off onto a what they're calling an airfield, which I think to the untrained eye looks like a relatively flat bit of Mars. And after a little bit of a delay for some sort of software 
issues and what have you, it successfully took off on Monday. So does that mean that now is it going to be gathering all sorts of data and exciting science about Mars? I mean, the short answer is no in this instance, Shamini, but it is kind of collecting data in so much as will this even fly? So Mars has a very different atmosphere to Earth. It has just 1% the density. And of course, calculations on aerodynamics that are done here on Earth might not necessarily apply. So this first test flight, which was just fly up for a few metres, turn round, I think 96 degrees, and fly down, was just to work out what's the power needed to do this kind of thing? You know, will it work? And it successfully did. Now, what I will say is this wasn't kind of done live by someone with a sort of Xbox controller back on Earth. Obviously, it's a very, very long way away. So this was kind of autonomous. And the signal from the helicopter was beamed to the rover that was then beamed to an orbiter, which was then beamed back to a big dish here on Earth. And then the feed came through for people to watch. So obviously, there was a bit of waiting to see what happened. And I will say I watched the live stream of this and it was quite low frame rate to begin with so what came back was it was on the ground and then the next frame it was up in the air so i was like wow <laughs> jpl and nasa have built an infinity miles an hour helicopter but when then the later feed came in and there it is quite serenely going up and going down and, and more flights are planned for the next few weeks to try and put it through more of its paces it sounds like it should be easy somehow i don't know why i think that but i'm like you know the aerodynamics people they can fly planes and all sorts you know it's just a helicopter on mars but yeah that first there's the how do you test it well you have to go to mars and then the whole issue of over those distances everything they do has to be pre-programmed they can't sort of respond live so Wow, they must have been um, pretty relieved that that worked. Well, it it seemed like it. There was a lot of cheering, as you might imagine. But in terms of sort of testing it, you're right, it is hard to test. We actually have a video on our YouTube channel where we've been looking at, you know, how you put something through its paces like this and the mission and how it was tested in this kind of low-density sort of chamber on Earth and all the sorts of issues to think about. So I'd recommend that listeners go and check that out once the podcast is finished. And there's one more little tidbit, Shamley, if, if I may. So something that I didn't know until I was doing some research into this was that this little helicopter had a tiny little patch of material attached from the Kitty Hawk, the Wright Brothers plane, the first powered flight. Yeah, I know, right? Isn't that amazing? There is a little tiny piece of the Wright Brothers plane up there on Mars. That's pretty cool. And yeah, do check out the video. So there'll be a link to our YouTube channel in the show notes where you can have a watch of that. Well, moving on then, Shamini, what, what have you got for me this week? I am happy this week because I have dinosaurs and you know you know how I feel about dinosaurs. I'm very pro-dinosaurs. So the big questions that you know everyone wants to know, we all, we all know T-Rex, Tyrannosaurus Rex, mm. big stumpy carnivore. What I feel that we always wanted to know but didn't was how many T-Rexes were there? I mean, this sounds like that I'm in a tech company interview. You've just asked me to work out how many T-Rexes, what that ever lived. And I'll show <laughs> my workings. I'll show my ignorance on the podcast if you want. Uh... I mean, I imagine, I mean, we have some fossils, I guess, but that's not all of the fossils. If it was, there'd only be, well, like, what, 12 Tyrannosaurus rex that ever lived. So I guess you have to try and work out the density of fossils in an area and do some complicated maths, maybe? Yeah, it's basically maths and complicated estimations. Um, and a, a team from University of California, Berkeley, have basically done that in a paper in science. Um, and there's a lot of guesses and uncertainties in their maths. But the main figure they needed was... You know, looking at modern animals, you've got a correlation between how big an animal is and how much 
land it needs. So a field might be able to support one elephant or it might be able to support a ton of mice. Um, so if you took a T-Rex, how much land, how much area do you think would be needed per T-Rex? Um, so that gives you a very rough estimate of the population density. And then they take what they know about where T-Rexes lived, which is kind of based on where the fossils are. But it's basically sort of modern North America or part of it. And they've done some maths and they concluded that at any one time, there would have been about 20,000 T-Rexes living. And that's actually not a lot. So their example was, if you take an area the size of Washington, D.C., it could probably support, they reckon, two T-Rexes, given the massive size of these things. But, you know, I said about 20,000 because there was a little note saying, you know, it could be out by a factor of 10 in either direction. Oh, well, okay, all right. (laughs) But I suppose you have to start somewhere. Yeah, and you can sort of scale this one up. So the big number that's sort of been in the headlines is, you know, how many were there ever? And multiply it by roughly how long T-Rexes were around for, which was maybe, I think, two and a half million years. And that gives you the big, exciting number of around 2.5 billion T-Rexes that ever lived. I mean, great. They have an estimate now. To what end? (laughs) Well, the thing that they were actually really interested in, aside from from going, yay, two and a half billion, you know, we have an estimate, was to try and understand more about fossilization and the fossil record. Because, as you mentioned, there aren't many T-Rex fossils that we know of. We have 32 separate adult T-Rexes that have been discovered as fossils, you know, ever. And so what this number gives us is, you know, we have 32 fossils out of potentially 2.5 billion T-Rexes. So what this tells us is that the chance of being fossilised, and this is for huge T-Rex that lived over a wide range for, for millions of years, the chances are tiny that we can actually find fossil evidence of them. Right. I mean, I guess that means that maybe if they're that vanishingly rare, what else have we never seen that maybe existed all over the place, but just chance to sort of digging it up thus far hasn't happened? Yeah, exactly. It really highlights the limit of our understanding of these times. You know, like I said, you know, this is just an estimate. We don't fully know what kind of territories these animals were living in, how much space they needed. And these are some of the better known ones. So, yeah, think about all the species that we may never even get a glimpse of. Well, Sharmini, that is an amazing story. And listeners, if you're interested in other stories like this, but you prefer them delivered direct to your inbox, then make sure to sign up for the Nature Briefing. And we'll put a link in the show notes for where you can do just that. That's all for this edition of the Nature Podcast. Do not forget, head over to our YouTube channel and we've got videos of the origami structures we were talking about and a video of a helicopter on Mars. Very cool. And as always, you can reach out to us on Twitter. We're at Nature Podcast. Or you can send us an email. We're podcast at nature.com. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Sharmini Bandel. Thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.